I want to cover basically the main ways of understanding the millennium in Revelation 20, which is where we've effectively got to. I don't think, you know, if you have strong views about this, I'm not necessarily going to change them, but I hopefully will just alert you to the different ways of seeing things and maybe challenge you to think again uh, or to think at least through more rigorously what it is that you do believe about it. But I hope that uh, there'll be a bit of time for questions on anything we've done so far afterwards. As we come to the millennium, it's probably one of the most famous bits of the book of Revelation. Uh, But what's all the fuss about? Well, the bizarre thing is that it is only a matter of just a handful of verses in Revelation 20. But let me just read to you from Revelation 20. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the keys to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands." They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have have part in the resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, maybe the sort of best way into this is just to ask, well, what are the questions this very, admittedly, very strange passage raises? What are the questions that that we need to think about? Well, the first question is the obvious one. What is the significance of the thousand years, the millennium? What does that mean? What does that represent? Then, what is the significance of the martyrs on the throne during this period? And why are the rest of the dead not there, as we see in verse 5? That's strange. And what can Satan do, if anything, while he is bound? How does the reign of Jesus fit with that? How does the return of Jesus fit with that? Those seem to me the big questions. I'm not going to answer them all completely tonight, but I'm going to alert the different ways of handling it so you can just see for yourself. Now, basically, if we take as our bottom line sort of structure this uh, diagram, which you've got in a number of different guises on your sheets, but basically this is um, marking the distinctions that you find in the Bible between the old covenant age, which comes to an end at, at one level in the first coming of Christ, okay, 
And the gospel age begins when he says, the kingdom of heaven is near, repent and believe the good news. And so, to all intents and purposes, we live in the gospel age because we live in the age when we know the Lord's name and trust in him and preach the gospel. All well and good. We know that there is an age to come in eternity, whatever that is. So we know that there is something ahead that we're not there yet. We know that Jesus is going to return. So there are a number of fixed points in, if you like, future history, if I can put it like that. And we are somewhere on this scale, somewhere. Now, I've no idea, nor do you, where we are between uh, the cross and the throne, to use the the, the, uh, pictures on the screen. So the big question is, where does the millennium fit with that? Where does Jesus' return fit with that? And how are we to understand the future? All right? Hopefully this will become at least uh, clear, if not enable you to plump for one or the other. There are three main views. Premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism, or amillennialism. And basically, the names derive from the relationship between Christ's second coming and the millennium. So the three options, and basically working out what the relationship is between Jesus' return and the millennium. So does Jesus' return come before the millennium? Well, that view is pre-millennialism. And so here you have pre-millennialism. So there you have a picture of the millennium. The second coming of Christ breaks in and starts the millennium, at the end of which Satan will be finally and fully destroyed. And all the sort of promises of Revelation 21 and 22 will then kick in after that. You know, Satan destroyed, and as we'll see next week, all the glories of heaven of Revelation 21 and 22, the city coming down and all that sort of stuff, all right? And I would have to say that at first sight, that certainly seems to fit best with what the text is saying. Now, whether or not that is right, I'll leave for you in, uh, to think about. But basically, that is what premillennialism is. Now, there are very, a number of varieties of premillennial thinking, but I'm not going to go into that. I just want you to get a sense of the big picture. Premillennial, the return comes pre before the millennium. Then we have postmillennialism, which is what you would think. In other words, the millennium happens and then Christ will return post the millennium, after the millennium. Um, I'm going to come uh, a bit later to working out some of the pluses and minuses for all these views. I, incidentally, I don't think there is a perfect view. So there are some tensions and some confusions here, whichever position you take. But that's basically what it is. The millennium after which comes the return of Christ, post-millennialism. All right? Everyone happy so far? Now we come to amillennialism. A is basically the Greek equivalent of 
un or on or in or non. So, you know, something's possible or it's impossible, which is a sort of Latin way of making something negative, okay? Something's possible or impossible, do you see? And basically, amillennialism means, is basically saying that there is no literal millennium and therefore the second coming is not to be understood in terms precisely of a time span of a thousand years. So the, the diagram hopefully sees that and effectively says that the millennium is equivalent to the gospel age. At the end of the gospel age, Jesus will return. Okay, that's effectively what's going on there. Now, those are the sort of general things. Now, before we actually go into the nitty-gritty of, of the, the pros and cons of each of them, and as I said, I think there are pros and cons for all three. Not one of them is absolutely perfect, although I have a, a view, and I certainly am comfortable with one more than the other two. But um, we'll come to that maybe if you want. But I think what we need to do, before we can work out which of these to plump for, I want to suggest that actually we do need to review some of the things we were saying in the first week and just think a bit about what it means or how we're to understand reading this book. Because actually how you handle the book as a whole must be important and influence how you handle chapter 20. It's not something that you can just sort of pull out of the book and decide that on the basis of that you can interpret everything else and you can handle that in a completely different way. Now, that makes logical sense, and yet it's funny how very often people seem to sort of go into overdrive in chapter 20 and do things with chapter 20 that they don't seem to do with the rest of the book. And uh, there are four approaches, and I again got them on the sheets, of how you approach the chronology. In other words, the time that's sort of working out of events in the book, all right? And they've got silly names, um, um, but I'm going to tell you them anyway, just because every now and then you might find them in the books and so on. But basically, these are the four. The first is called the preterist. Okay, here's the same basic structure of the cross and Jesus at the beginning, his first coming, and the relationship between that and the beginning of the new kingdom age of Revelation 21 and 22. Now, the four different options determine where we find ourselves sitting in relation to the book. So in other words, the events we see described in Revelation so far in the chapters 6 to 19 and so on that we've been talking about, where do you and I fit? Where are we on that line? Now the preterist says basically things that were revealed in the book of Revelation were fulfilled in the first century. So what we read in the, in the book fits with the first century. In other words, John's contemporary era where the Roman emperor was holding sway. And this certainly fits with a number of things. So, for instance, the whole business of the prostitute with the seven hills. It must be Rome. I'm sure in John's original thinking that's what he had in mind, Rome. Because Rome was the power that put him on Patmos. He was suffering firsthand, personally, as a result of what the beast was doing through this empire, do you see? So it certainly has some fit there. And the imagery of Babylon is basically just a biblical image. Uh, you remember we've said that nothing in the book of Revelation is unique to Revelation. It's come somewhere before in the Bible. 
So it's only natural that he would use the imagery of Babylon to describe the power of the state against God and his people. And it seems to fit quite clearly with Rome. So the preterist view says, look, here we are somewhere along the line, but everything that we read in the book of Revelation pretty much, with a few exceptions of the stuff right at the very end, describes John's period. But then you have what's called the historicist, which is slightly different. And what that sees is effectively a progression of events through the gospel age, and our job is therefore to try and establish where on the line we are in relationship to what's going on in the book. And so this is the sort of view that says, look, further on we are along this line, the closer we are to Jesus' return, which is true. And our task is to try and establish whether there are events in human history in recent years, for instance, that correspond to maybe one of the cycles or you know, one of the bowls or, or whatever it might be, so that we can say, ah, yes, all we've got to wait for is X, Y, and Z, and then we're there. So the historicist says that basically what you get in Revelation is a blueprint for human history between Jesus' first and second comings. So it basically reads like a sort of historical blueprint. Now, again, there are parts of the, the book that might seem to suggest that. So, for instance, do you remember when uh, we were looking at the whole business of opening the seals? Who was worthy to open the seal? And we said that actually this was about the unrolling, outrolling, if you like, of God's purposes for human history. And no one was worthy until the lamb who had been slain came forward. Perhaps that's what's going on. But then there's another view. Please don't, I hope you don't get too confused by this, but I do think actually this will help, believe it or not. You just have to take my word for it at the moment. This is the futurist view. Basically, we're somewhere here, and everything in the book is waiting to occur. So the day will come when suddenly all of this stuff is just going to kick in, and it's just going to be you know, a roller coaster right to the end. So it's the exact opposite. It's the sort of mirror image, if you like, of the preterist. Now, I would suggest that each of those three views has its problems for a number of reasons. But it's um, one of the reasons why there is a fourth, which is what's called the idealist or the parallelist. Parallelist. And that basically says that actually nothing in the book of Revelation actually points to specific historical events as such but rather describes the patterns, the principles, the experiences of what it means to live in the gospel age or, to put it in another biblical term, the last days. This is last days experience. And that's why uh, that would fit with what we were thinking about as one solution to the trumpets and the bowls and, and, and stuff, is that they're not consequential, they're parallel. So in other words, they describe the same sorts of things, but just in different ways. So we're not meant to see, well, one set of cycles and then a few years later another set of cycles. They all describe the same period. Now, to my mind, that would explain why it is the case that every generation identifies the beast. Well, of course it does. If it is meant to be, if you like, a sort of, not so much a blueprint, but as a sort of endurance manual for the last days when there is opposition to God and his people is not surprising that every generation has been able to identify and say, yes, he's this person. 
Now, actually, each of these four views has its problems. And I think there is a sense in which all four of them, in their different ways, help to understand the book. Because there is a sense in which the imagery, the landscape, the experience that the book describes is John's from the first century. And, you know, language like you have in the seven letters of the seven churches, you know, the language of the synagogue of Satan and stuff, that's very clearly first century context where Jewish people are persecuting Jewish believers and Gentile believers in, in the Messiah. And we know that happened in the first century. Whereas that's a fairly bizarre and, and not very common sort of experience necessarily now. So it clearly had rootedness and, and historical context in the first century. That's absolutely right. And perhaps there is a sense in which there are future things to occur. But then you see, I think what actually makes more sense to me is that the idealist would explain why there are correlations all the way along. But actually it seems to me to point to uh, the reality of the experience in this whole period. Does everyone follow me on that so far? And it certainly seems to fit with what we were saying last week about the cycles, because otherwise, if you have the cycles as consequential or sequential, in other words, one, then the other, then the other, then you seem to have the end of the world and the second coming two or three times, which doesn't make sense. And it's certainly, you know, it would be a fairly unique interpretation if that's what your view was. So I would suggest that actually any interpretation we come up with should be recognizable by a Christian from any generation of the last 2,000 years. If it isn't, if it's so specific to our generation, I don't know, because of the invasion of Iraq or the Soviet Union or, or whatever it might be, then I would suggest that we're possibly, I might even say probably, barking up the wrong tree just because it would be completely alien to John and his readers. But John, like all the biblical prophets, was speaking as much to his own generation as the generations long after. And that's a fact, actually, if you look at Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, all those guys, they're not so much concerned about us. They're concerned about their brothers and sisters and their children and grandchildren. The fact that actually it relates to us and we can find all kinds of parallels and realities, I think is just the result of the way the book works in describing this whole period. And it is probably a blind alley to start trying to pinpoint specific things because if you think about it, and we'll come back to this, if you're doing it in order to work out the end time, the day of the Lord's return, then you must be up the wrong tree. Because Jesus said, no one knows. And when he says no one knows, he actually included himself. So that presumably means no one knows. Which presumably includes John the Apostle. Not even John knew. Indeed. No one knows. And so I don't think we're ever invited to try and work it out. Instead, we're told how to live in the light of its certainty. And there's a fundamental difference. So as you can perhaps tell, that if you take an idealist view, which is pretty much where I am, 
that fits more closely with an A-mill position than any of the others. So to let the cat out of the bag in case it wasn't that obvious, I prefer an A-mill position. But I'll say a bit more about um, each of those in a moment. But uh, you remember what we said in the very first week about how we handle the book. You remember we were thinking about actually realizing what this book is, and we saw in the very first four verses, the first paragraph of the whole book in chapter 1, it describes itself as apocalyptic. Apocalypse is literally revealing. It's pulling back the curtains. And, you know, apocalypto means you know, to, to reveal what was hidden. So in other words, it's like a sort of divine bird's eye view of human history. So God pulls back the curtains all too briefly for John to have a glimpse so that he can report back to us. But it's a word of prophecy. Not prophecy in the sort of secular sense, just foretelling the future, but the word of prophecy in the biblical sense, which is speaking God's words into the situation. Sometimes that includes telling the future. But the fascinating thing is that the vast majority of times, in the Old Testament particularly, you find that the prophets are not telling the future. They're simply saying, if you carry on like this, God has warned you what will happen. Which is slightly different. But it is also an epistle for a number of churches in Turkey who are being persecuted and suffering terribly. Some have gone off the track. And we saw that in chapters 2 and 3. But it is a letter for them both to understand and to persevere through. That's why it was written. We must never forget that. So what do we do? We need to crack the code. We need to learn the plan. In other words, the whole point of it all. And we saw that actually the plan is that the Lamb has won. And all we get here is basically just the outworking, the consequences of that victory on the cross. All right, so there's nothing new in Revelation, despite its weirdness. There's nothing new. He's done it. We see the center, the lamb that was slain on the throne, and we keep the faith. Now, in the light of all of that, how do we handle these four things? Well, here are a few thoughts. I would suggest that pre-mill fits most naturally with the literal sense. It seems to fit most naturally with the, the, the literal sense, and you read chapter 20, and uh, you, you start um, thinking, yeah, this happens, then that happens, and so on. And uh, this fits in with a whole sort of huge structure of thinking and biblical interpretation that, uh, for instance, sees the founding of Israel in um, 1947-1948 as the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. And uh, the details of the book plus Old Testament prophecies tend to be therefore worked out in minute and incredible detail. So you just have to do a Google search on the internet and you find the most incredible sites that actually take every word Now I wish that you know we did half of the work on the Bible as, as some of those people did. You know, taking every word with minute care and trying to work out what it means, how it fits, its significance. And that's a very important thing to do. And uh, I respect that immensely. And I think it does look very convincing, and there are many things about it that actually um, seem to make sense. 
and particularly in the um, uh, United States and uh, a number of other uh, countries uh, that, uh, where there are churches that have been influenced by the United States, pre-mill thinking is very, very strong. And, you know, as they always say, you know, some of my best friends are premillennialists. <laughs> I just got one or two just niggles. One is the whole business of the rapture. And that's taken from 1 Thessalonians chapters 4 and 5 primarily. And the idea is that people are taken up into the air to be with Christ in his millennial reign. There are one or two other verses that seem to uh, back that up, but it's, to my mind, it's special pleading sometimes, and it certainly seems a dangerous thing to do to build an entire theology on just basically one passage. But uh, that aside, uh, this is a very interesting quote from Paul Blackham, who speaks about the, the millennium pre-mill view. He says basically, uh, and when he uses the word eschatology, it's just a fancy theological word for um, the study of the last things. Eschaton is the last thing in Greek. Eschatology is the study of the last things. So basically, you know, a, a silly sort of poncy theologian type person asks you, what's your eschatology? You can now tell them. But basically, this is what Paul says about it. It's very interesting. He says, the real danger of a rapture-based eschatology is not so much that it has a, such a small exegetical foundation which is the point I was making, that actually there are few, very few texts on which to build it. But the problem is that it abandons the earth to the wicked. The righteous are taken away from the world, whereas the wicked remain, which is the exact opposite of Christ's point. For instance, with Noah, the eight believers were alive on the earth, whereas all the wicked were taken away by the flood. You see, it is the meek who inherit the earth, not the wicked. And it seems to fit with actually quite a sort of Greek way of thinking that sees the sort of the, the earth, the material, as evil, and that therefore we need to be whisked away from it. Whereas one of the fascinating things about the Bible is how good the material, earthy, physical, tangible, fleshy is, and that's absolutely uh, reinforced in Revelation 21, where the city comes down to earth. God comes down to earth. Jesus comes down to earth in the opposite of what he did at the ascension, which was to go up so that he could come down again. The whole point is he's coming back, not that we go away. But then you've got to ask the question, how many comings are there? And I think this is the biggest problem. Because it seems to imply that something big is going to happen at the end of the millennium. But what? Now, is there a second coming or is there a third coming? What's going on there? And it doesn't square with, to my mind, the rest of the Bible. Thirdly, how does prophecy work? Well, if you've done the Bible overview that um, I did a few weeks ago, you can download it if you haven't. Uh, it's on iTunes. But basically, how does prophecy work? Well, prophecy is fulfilled in a number of different ways. And to see that Israel is the fulfillment, uh, 1948 is the fulfillment of biblical prophecy seems to undermine, A, what Jesus teaches about the kingdom, and B, to misunderstand how prophecy works. Now, that's a big issue. I haven't got time to go into depth with that. There is also a culture, and I grant you that this is not, doesn't follow for everybody who is a pre-mill uh, person. There are, there are people who are pre-mill who don't believe this, so I don't want to tar them all with the same brush. But there is a strand of premillennial thinking that is what you would call isolationist. 
and I would say irresponsible. In other words, it's batten down the hatches and wait for the second coming is basically the view. Let the world go hang. Let's not care for the world or engage with the world because basically we just got to wait. It's all going to be burned up anyway and we just wait for the rapture and it'll be fine. I think there's real danger here and I think that that falls into very dangerous Greek thinking rather than biblical thinking. And it seems to completely contradict the way, for instance, the New Testament talks about the resurrection and the resurrection body. If you want more on that, I did two sermons on 1 Corinthians 15 just after Easter, and I was trying to tackle deliberately the whole issue of how God views the material. Um, I didn't obviously directly deal with millennium there, but I think it's related. And I think this fits in, and again, not all people who are pre-mill are fundamentalists, but there is a strand of Christian fundamentalism which withdraws from the world, lets the world go to hell, and we have a lovely time waiting for the second coming and just don't care about anything else. Now, that is a gross exaggeration, and I'm, please hear me, I'm not saying that everyone who holds to pre-mill thinking is like this, but it leads to a tendency to think like that if you're not careful. Okay, what about post-mill? I completely sort of trash pre-mill. What about post-mill? The interesting thing is this is making a comeback. I've got one or two friends who have recently become post-mill. To my mind, is pretty extraordinary. It avoids the pre-mill problem of the second or third comings by saying Jesus' return occurs at the end of the millennium. That seems to make a degree of sense to me. And it sees the church as a fulfillment of the millennial prophecies in spiritual terms rather than literal. And very often you'll find people who are post-mill will often cite the fact that actually the church has grown faster in the last 100 years than it has done in the last 2,000. Um, and it is quite phenomenal. I, uh, I wish I, I should have brought them with me, but I've got some stats upstairs which show that basically in terms of the world's population, the proportion of Christians in the last 100 years has risen from about 6% to 33%, and it's still rising. Now, we find that hard to believe in the West. And I'm using the word Christian with the broadest umbrella possible because, you know, you can't begin to start, you know, deciding on people's salvation just from statistics. But people who own the name Christian is about a third of the planet now. And it's still growing. The average Anglican, okay, I speak in an Anglican church as an Anglican minister, the average Anglican is an African woman. There are thousands upon thousands of people coming to Christ in China daily. South America is rapidly going Protestant. Rapidly. It is phenomenal. In the last 30, 40 years, it seemed so unlikely. Korea South Korea is the most phenomenal growth. And I was reading somewhere that um, they reckon that if and when there is reunification, the South Korean churches reckon they can evangelize the whole of North Korea in about 10 years just because of their numerical strength. Uh, I was in Albania just um, earlier this year, and I've been a couple of times, and I'm going again later this year doing Langham preaching conferences. In about 1990, 1991... Albania was 
renowned as perhaps one of the most closed countries on earth. You know, their communism was so pure that they broke off diplomatic relations with Russia and China because they were too soft. I remember um, the first time I went to Albania, I shared a room with a pastor who had been in the Albanian Navy for 20 years as a solitary Christian, keeping it very secret but just plugging away, and he's now a pastor. I said, you know, what did you do in the Albanian Navy? I mean, who were your enemies? He said, our enemies were everybody. We could have been invaded by Russia, China, or America. We didn't know who. So they basically just patrolled up and down the Adriatic to prevent invasion. In less than 20 years, the number of evangelical churches has gone from one or two to 200. And most of those people are from a a previously Islamic background. And many ways, there are many Christians in Albania who are from a Muslim background who see themselves as a sort of bridgehead into the Middle East because they can travel anywhere because they're a Muslim country. And so basically, post-mill people will say, well, look, the millennium has already started. Christ's reign is being seen in all kinds of ways, and the world will be phenomenally changed. And the rate of Christian growth in China will mean that the world's most populous country will start having perhaps even a majority, certainly the largest religious grouping being Christian. Now, for a country that has a billion people in it, that is going to have a profound impact on the world, isn't it? As more and more people are shaped by a Christian worldview. And so post-mill people see these developments as a sign that actually Christ's millennial reign is has already happened and things are getting better and better and stronger and stronger. Yes, there is opposition. But Satan is bound so that that is how the church has grown so much. So yes, post-mill is making a comeback. The interesting thing is it made a big comeback in the Victorian era and particularly in British Christian circles because of the British Empire being the means to spread the gospel, for better, for worse. There were good things about that, there were some bad things about it. Uh, But the First World War put an end to that. But maybe it is right. And I've got friends I respect greatly who take this view. But I would suggest that the problem with it is that it appears naive. Because is it the case that things really are getting better? Even in the countries where there is phenomenal growth, actually the persecution seems to be getting ratcheted up. So what about Emil? Well, if you are an English or British evangelical, you are almost certainly Emil without knowing it. If you are a Southern Baptist from the United States, you're almost certainly pre-mill without knowing it. And basically, you've probably never met anyone who takes a different view. And then you come to All Souls, and uh, you find that um, basically you're mixing with all kinds of different views. And basically, the idea is that we live in the millennium, Christ is reigning in heaven while Satan is held back. There will come a time just before the end when things are going to get drastically and terribly worse. But the interesting thing is, and I wonder if you notice this in Revelation 20, that there's this big preparation for a big cosmic battle, and people get very excited about Armageddon and the Middle East and all this sort of stuff. But the fascinating thing is when you read it, and we'll say more about this next week, when you read it, you find there's all this hype, all this build-up, and then nothing happens because God's just done it. There's no battle. 
It's a complete foregone conclusion. It's a one-sided game over situation before it's even begun. You know, all this sort of Armageddon stuff, nothing happens. God just wipes it out because there's no dualism in Revelation. The victory is assured. The Lamb has won. We know how it ends. And there's no struggle. So it seems perhaps that the millennium fits with the whole gospel age. It describes what it's been like in every generation. And we wait for the second coming, as we're told to, and uh, go from there. Now, there are weaknesses with it. Some people say it's over-spiritualizing things. Some people say it doesn't take the Bible seriously enough. It doesn't take the text seriously enough. And uh, they say, you know, Israel is fulfilled in the church. But is that right? But I have to say that, to my mind, it seems to fit best with the way the book functions as a book, as a work of literature. It is not designed to be a blueprint for the chronology of human history, as far as I can see. Instead, I think it is a survival manual for every generation as we await the end. Because we don't know when that's going to be. And in a sense, even if it was a pre-mill document and, you know, we could, we could find and identify specific events, we still don't know. So there's no point even asking the question. Actually, what we've got to do is just endure. I mean, that's the message of the seven letters, isn't it? Endure. Hold on to the end. Keep the faith. Restore. Redeem your first love. Because if it's not like that, then it only has relevance for a tiny proportion of people in human history. In other words, the guys who are around at the last minute. And that certainly doesn't seem to fit with the way the book works. Okay, let me finish with this. I want to ask the question, does it matter? I don't think it matters too much which view you take. But there are some things that do matter, and I think this is what I want to finish with. A very good friend of mine in Uganda was an American guy, and uh, we were colleagues. We were both teaching in the same college. He is pre-mill. And uh, uh, I respect him immensely. He had previously worked for a college in another African country that was largely funded from the States. When this friend of mine started having wobbles about his premillennial views and began to think about the possibility of maybe perhaps just vaguely thinking about possibly changing his view to Emil, he was sacked and ended up teaching in the college I worked in where we didn't have a strong position on the issue. Now, as it happens, in the end, he, he hasn't really completely gone over to Emil. He's still, if he had to you know, come down on any other, anyone, he would say he was pre-mill. But frankly, I find that very hard to understand. Because basically, in some circles, it has become a litmus test for how sound you are. And that seems to me to be absurd when it is such a tiny part of a difficult book anyway. Just a few verses in Revelation 20. How you interpret that becomes the test of soundness. I just don't understand it. Now, I say this to American friends sometimes, and, and I say to them, look, it's probably because I'm English, and it's just not a big deal over here. You know, I do want people to try and help me to understand why it is such a big deal, but I, I fear that it has become salvation plus believing in a certain eschatology which seems slightly nuts when Jesus tells us we don't know what's going to happen, when it's going to happen anyway. So I would suggest watch out for the implications of what you're thinking. 
Work out, if you are pre-meal, make sure that you don't become someone who just withdraws from the world as if it doesn't really matter. If you're post-meal, don't be naive about society. If you're a-meal, make sure you handle the scriptures well. Make sure you take details seriously. Watch out for the implications of whichever view, because as I said, I think there are challenges and difficulties with each of them. But what I want you to go away with more than anything else is trust the basics. Jesus is the king. Jesus has won. Jesus is coming back. And Jesus' disciples are safe. That's all you need to know, in fact, in the end. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you're safe. So whether you are taken up in a rapture or whether we're all going to be here um, at the second coming after the millennial reign or whether it's going to be just you know, one big jamboree at the end of the gospel age, I don't know. And in a sense, I don't care. What I do care is that we're there. I do care if your name is written in the book of life. I do care if you have the mark of the Lamb, not the mark of the beast. That is what we should care about. And where there are brothers and sisters who share the mark of the Lamb, who disagree about eschatology, we are still brothers and sisters. Jesus is king. Jesus has won. Jesus is coming back. And his disciples are safe. That is all you need to know. And with that, we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Father, there are many things we don't know. There are many things that we cannot foresee. There are many things that confuse. There are many things that trouble us about our world, about our lives, sometimes even about your word. But we pray that whatever view we end up with on this tricky issue of the millennium and how we understand the things we've been talking about earlier with uh, the beast and the dragon, we pray that whatever views we come to on those, we would hold firmly to the fundamental realities of who's one and whose people we are. And we pray that in the light of that, we will go away confident that we are safe, that we have a place with you, and that we will be there for eternity. For your glory's sake. Amen.